0: We're going to be in Philippians chapter two, verses twelve to eighteen, this morning. Philippians two, twelve to eighteen. So, if you got a Bible, get over there. I'm going to guess that if you are an Aggie, uh, you went to likely went to fish camp before you started at A and M. Fish camp is an opportunity for you to go from being a normal person to being an Aggie person. It's sort of a re-education camp. For high school seniors going into their freshman year at A and M, so you learn uh, what you ought to say and not say. So you say things like "gig 'em," not "hook 'em." Right? You learn what you ought to wear and what you ought not to wear. You wear maroon. You don't wear burnt orange. You learn all of the yells and you learn how to arrange your time and your life. So you learn how to schedule things. There are football games and yell practices. And then down here there's class somewhere underneath the priorities. And, and I remember being uh, at fish camp. And they talked about how once you are an Aggie, you're always an Aggie. You're never an ex-Aggie. It's like you have passed through a portal from not an Aggie to being an Aggie. And being an Aggie for many of the men and women there, maybe most, is one of the dearest and most important parts of their life. It becomes that way. So I remember on the last day of fish camp, there was a, a senior who got up and they kind of they brought us into a room and they lowered the lights and it was sort of like a religious experience where he spoke about... His Aggie ring and how he had placed it on his left finger. He said, I'll keep it on my left finger until the day I get married. Then I'll move it to the other one. Because for now, this is the closest hand to my heart. And it was deeply important. Because the idea is that you've passed through a a portal. You've gone from one state of being to another state of being. One identity to another identity. There are moments in our lives... Where we go from one state or identity to another. Maybe it happened for you when you got married. You went from being a single person to being a married person. And so for the rest of your life, you are working out the implications of what it looks like to be married instead of single. Maybe it happened for you when you had kids. You went from not a parent to being a parent. And so for the rest of your life, you're figuring out and maybe often feeling clueless about what it means to be a parent. Maybe it happened for you when you changed careers or you moved to a new stage of life. Students, you will eventually go from not a student to a student to not a student. And the rest of your life, you're going to figure out what does it look like to be an adult? And you might ask somebody 20 years along and they go, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. But you've passed through a portal. The book of Philippians... Gives us the impression as you read all the way through that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you have passed through the most important portal you will ever pass through. You've gone from one state of being or identity to another. So that after you have trusted in Jesus, after you believe Jesus died for my sins and Jesus rose again for me, So that I can have eternal life. After you believed in that, you passed through a portal. And what you do now is you're going to spend the rest of your life working out what that means, living out the implications of what Jesus did for you and what you believed. That's the rest of the Christian life. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul has said what we want to do is look at what Jesus did and then take our lives, remember, and pour our lives out for the gospel. We say, because of what Jesus did, I want to give my life to obeying him, to knowing him, and to proclaiming him. And last week in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, we looked at probably the most powerful passage in the book of Philippians where Paul laid out, here's what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus went from the highest place in the universe to the lowest position possible so that we could have eternal life and so that God could be glorified. So then now as we round, round the corner into, into verses 12 to 18, Paul says, now what I want you to do, I want you to look at what Jesus did and all he accomplished for you and you live in light of that reality forever. You work out that salvation that you have been given for the rest of your life. That's what the rest of your life is about. So that as we look at Philippians 2, 12 to 18, the main idea is this. You spend the rest of your life becoming more like Jesus. You say, here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus did. Now from this point forward, if I have trusted in Jesus, I'm going to spend the rest of my life becoming more and more and more like Jesus. As the Spirit transforms me so that I can reflect Him With what I do, and I can proclaim Him with what I say. That's Philippians 2 12 through 18. It's a call to be changed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ in light of the gospel. So, the the questions that we want to ask ourselves as we move into Philippians chapter 2 are questions like this Am I growing through the power of the Spirit to become more like Jesus? Do I look more like Jesus now than I did a year ago? Do I know the Word of God better now today than I did a year ago? Is my prayer life richer today than it was a year ago or two years ago? Do I love more deeply now than I did a year ago? Am I growing and growing to be more and more like Jesus? That's where Philippians 2, 12 to 18 is going to take us. Paul gives us this command, work out your salvation. And then he's going to illustrate for us an application of that command and then the results of that command if we obey. Follow with me in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will And to work for his good pleasure. So, first, he gives us a command. He says, Work out your salvation. He says, Not just when I am with you, not just when I'm looking over your shoulder, telling you what to do, but now that I'm absent, remember, Paul's in prison. He says, Now that I'm absent from you, I want you to continue this process. Take all I taught you about Jesus, all I taught you about discipleship, and continue to work it out, even when I'm no longer there to instruct you. And he gives this command work out your salvation. Now, this can be a confusing phrase, especially if you think about salvation the way that we tend to think about salvation. So when we normally think about salvation, if I say to you, are you saved? What are you going to think that I'm asking? You're going to think, do I know that I am going to heaven when I die, right? Have I trusted in Jesus? Do I know that I'm going to go to heaven one day. That is the way we almost always, we almost always use the word salvation. But as we look at Philippians 2, that poses us a problem because we go, what does it mean then to work out my salvation? Because I have passages in my mind, like Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, where it says, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of what? Works. So that none should boast. So you say, how can it not be a result of works in Ephesians? And yet here in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation. You see that tension. So what's going on? Well, in order to understand this, I want to take us through just a very short word study of the word salvation this morning. We're going we're to fly through it, but here, here's what I want to do. Any word, any word. The meaning of that word is determined to some extent by the context in which it is used. So if I say to you the word trunk, for example, there are a lot of meanings for the word trunk. I could be talking about the trunk of a tree. I could be talking about the trunk of a car. I could be talking about the trunk of an elephant. I could be talking about swimming trunks. There are a lot of ways that word could be used. The only way you know what it means is to hear the words that surround it. That's the context. When our oldest daughter was a toddler, she had a word that she used in a lot of different contexts. It was a two-letter word. It was pa, pa. Pa could mean please. It could mean pray. It could mean play. It could mean peas or pears or pass. There were a lot of words that pa could mean. So if we were sitting at the kitchen table, she might say, pa, ma, pa, pa. And my wife would say, can you pass her the peas, please? And people would go, how did you know that? Well, it's context and being amazing parents. It's a little bit of both of those. <laughs> All right, it's context, though. What does pa mean here? If we're outside and she says ma, pa, pa, it might be more play, please. I'd like to play for longer. The word pa is determined by the context in which it is placed. Same thing with the word salvation. It has a basic root meaning in the original language. The, the, the word is from this root so-so, to save. And it has the idea of to deliver or rescue. But every time you see the word salvation, you need to ask, deliver or rescue from what and for what? What am I being saved from and what am I being saved for? And as you look through the scripture, the word is used in a lot of different ways. Let me give you some examples from the scripture. So Matthew chapter 14, but seeing the wind, Peter became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. That's the verb, so-so. Now, Peter is not saying, Jesus, take me to heaven when I die. In fact, he's saying something quite the opposite here. I don't want to die. Get me out of the water. Save me from what? Imminent death. And what does Jesus do? He reaches down and he saves him. He pulls him up out of the water. So salvation can refer to physical salvation. It can also refer to physical healing. Look at this, Luke eight forty eight, And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, or literally it has saved you. Go in peace. Now what's going on? Remember, this was a woman who was sick. She had a flow of blood that had gone on for 12 years. She came and she touched Jesus' robe and she was healed. Jesus found her. He located her in the crowd. And this is what he says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, what's it saved her from? Well, she didn't get eternal life because she was physically healed. She was saved from sickness. So it can mean deliverance from physical illness, deliverance from physical death. If you look in First uh, Thessalonians 5, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining what salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. This verse uses salvation the way most of us think about it most of the time. Paul is saying, whether you are dead or alive, you know that you will eventually live together with Jesus. One day, when you die, you will go to heaven because you have what? You have salvation. You've been saved from what? Hell. You've been saved from the eternal penalty of your sin, and now you've been saved for eternal life with Jesus Christ. A couple of others, quickly. Romans chapter 13, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Now, that's an interesting one. What does he mean? Salvation is nearer. Well, he means what's closer? The day that Jesus will come back. You believed in Jesus at a point in time, Jesus is coming back, and what will happen then? He will save us from the presence of death, from the presence of sin, he will create a new world, and we will all be saved forever into his eternal kingdom. So this isn't just when you die now, this is when Jesus comes back, all right? So salvation can talk about that moment where we all who have believed in Jesus will be saved forever from the presence of death, the presence of sin, into the presence of eternal life forever. And then the last one here, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may what? Grow up in your salvation. Now that's a very interesting verse as well. What is he saying? Are you somehow getting more and more eternal life the longer you know Jesus? What does it mean to grow up in your salvation? What is Peter saying? What what does a, a baby do? Well, the baby is born. The baby is alive. Just like when you trusted in Jesus, you became alive. But now what do you do? You drink from the Word. You drink from God's Spirit. You engage in worship with the community of believers. And you grow up in respect to that salvation. That is, you become more and more like Jesus. You become more loving, more kind, more righteous and just and holy. And you become more and more like Jesus. You grow up in respect to your salvation. You are increasingly saved from the power of sin in your life. That usage right there is what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about when he says, work out your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. That's important. The preposition matters deeply. He's saying, work out your salvation. That is, now that you've trusted Jesus, you will spend the rest of your life working out in your life, what does it look like to be a person who has passed through this portal from death to life? How do I become more and more and more like Jesus? And the motivations that he gives for that, why should we want to work for our salvation? Let me give you two, or work out our salvation, excuse me. Why should we work out our salvation? First of all, this, because the gospel changes everything. He says, you're going to spend the rest of your life learning, what does it mean now that I have been saved by Jesus Christ? Because the gospel changes everything. Remember chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. He says, here's the greatest illustration in all of human history of what it looks like to set aside your rights. Jesus went from here all the way down to here, and then all the way back up here again. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And one day you'll go to be with him. And you look at what Jesus has done and you say, I trust in him for eternal life. And Paul says the gospel then changes everything. You have passed through a portal from death to life, from hell to heaven. And that ought to change the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act everything about your life, because you're in a new relationship with God, you're in a new relationship with others, you're in a new understanding of yourself. Everything has changed so that from here on forward, you work out your salvation. Those of you who have kids might find this interesting. A few years ago, I I read an article that said, from birth until 18 years old, it costs just over $200,000 to raise a child on average. One child, just over $200,000 on average. That's a lot of money. You you give them food, you give them clothes, you provide shelter for them. That's a ton of money. And sometimes it's stressful, right? It's difficult. But you you persevere. Why? Because you know that one day they're going to graduate high school. And when you have that high school graduation reception, you're going to give them an invoice. $232,000 $232,000 or maybe not. I shared that illustration several years ago and somebody actually came up and said, I actually know somebody whose parents presented them with an invoice. But most of us won't because first of all, we know they could never pay it back. And secondly, because we did not invest in their lives so that we could earn the money back. Why did we invest in their lives? Why did we train them, teach them, care for them, feed them? Because we want them to go on and live lives that are in keeping with the values that we poured into their life. What's the greatest way your children can show you gratitude? It's to go forward and live a life in keeping with the values you taught them. Not to pay you back. But to say from here on out, I have been shaped and changed by the influence of my parents and my family, so I will live in keeping with those values. That's what Paul says. The gospel changes everything. If you are living like Jesus out of some belief that you can pay him back, you can't. The debt of sin that we owed to God was way too great for you to ever pay back what Jesus has done. But instead, Paul says, in gratitude and love, you know now go forward and you reflect Jesus Christ. Because you've gone from death to life. The gospel changes everything. And he says, you work out your salvation. The gospel changes everything. And then he goes on and he says, work it out with fear and trembling. The second reason we work out our salvation is because our lives will be evaluated. This, this fear and trembling, what it, what it has the idea of is an appropriate sense of awe and reverence before God. That he is the God of the universe. He is the one whose judgments matter. And one day we will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, when we stand before Jesus Christ as believers, we are not not standing before him to determine whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. That decision is made the moment you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Your eternal life is secure. But we will still stand before Jesus and face an evaluation. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul talks about his impending evaluation as he's about to die and see Jesus. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. He says, in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He says, because I've submitted my life to the Spirit of God. So he says, when I stand before Jesus, I'm confident I will hear, well done. Here he says, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you know that on that day, nothing in the universe will matter more than the assessment of your Savior. Were you faithful to reflect Him? Were you faithful to listen to His word? And so he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on and he says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this strikes us as a little funny as well, because he says, work out your salvation. And then in the next verse, he says, it's God who works in you. And you say, which is it, Paul? Do I work out my salvation or does the spirit work it out in me? Which is it? Is it this one or this one? And Paul says, absolutely it is both. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see this kind of uh, pattern throughout the scripture. Paul says, I worked really hard, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God, but I worked really hard but it was the grace of God. And you say, are you kind of conflicted here, Paul? What's going on? No, because we are called to submit our lives to the movement of the Spirit, to be obedient, to listen to His voice, to be disciplined as we read the Scripture as we obey, as we worship with other believers, as we pray. In other words, we engage in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, not because we are earning something, but because those disciplines make us available to what the Spirit will do. And so Paul says, you work out your salvation and allow the Spirit to change you. Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that you do has any value for the kingdom of heaven unless Jesus works it in you. But Paul Paul says, the work is for you and me to make ourselves day after day available to the voice of the Spirit. So you work out your salvation because God is working in you. So Paul says, first of all, this command, you work out your salvation. That is, you come to grips increasingly with what it means that you've passed through this portal. And then he gives a very interesting application next. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, why of all of the things Paul could have said right here, does he zero in on grumbling or complaining? Think about it for just a minute. There are are a whole bunch of things that he could have zeroed in on. Hey, as you work out your salvation, try not to kill anybody. He could have said that, right? Don't murder. That's right up there in the Ten Commandments. As you work out your salvation, don't build idols. That's right up there too. Don't commit adultery. There are a lot of things he could have said. So why does he he go here? You work out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And he says, the application I want to give you today is don't grumble or argue. There are a couple of reasons I think he goes here. One is this, because this was a group of people who had a real problem with grumbling and arguing. As you read the book of Philippians, you see these repeated exhortations. Get along, get along. In chapter 4, he's going to address two ladies by name, Uodia and Syntyche, and say, hey, you two, get along. So that for all of eternity, in the word of God, that will not pass away, this is what they're known for. Get along. I've always thought these two ladies are somewhere in heaven going, man, there, there were other things we did besides argue. But it's that important. He, and so they have an issue, so he addresses it. But there's another reason he addresses it. And it is this. If we are to work out our salvation, if we're to look back at what Jesus did and say, I want my life to reflect that. Then we have to recognize that gratitude is a pathway to obedience. In fact, maybe the primary pathway to obedience, because ingratitude is the pathway to most of our sin. Most of our sin in our lives stems from a failure to be grateful to God for all he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And ingratitude leads to mistrust and mistrust leads to sin, right? So my heart begins to be steeped in ingratitude and that leads me towards sin. And so Paul says, you have to eliminate that ingratitude from your heart by the power of the Spirit. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Fill your mind and your heart with thoughts of gratitude that come out of your mouth that lead you to obedience. James chapter 4 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, there's something in your life that you want and you don't have, so you're ungrateful, and what do you do? You reach out in a sinful way to grab what God has not given, because you don't trust him. So Paul says, if you want your life to reflect Jesus Christ, you start with gratitude. There's two words here, don't grumble, Don't dispute. The word grumble is literally a word that means to murmur under your breath. Think about the last time you asked a child to do a chore. Go feed the dog. And they begin to move to do what you've asked. But as they move from uh, standing and you can see the back of their head, what do you hear? Right? That's grumbling. That's what Paul means. And it's not just kids who do it. As we come to terms with the reality that the Spirit is trying to transform us, we are called to love people that we may not like. We are called to give what we may have earned. We are called to change our patterns and behaviors of thinking and acting. We go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. And we grumble. Just for a moment, if it's not too painful for you, Think about those areas of your life where you're tempted toward ingratitude. My career isn't what I thought it would be. I had dreams and desires for my job and my career and they haven't panned out. My family isn't what I thought it would be. My kids aren't where I hoped they would be, where I prayed they would be. God hasn't given me in my marriage what I hoped and prayed he would give. I don't have the money I thought that I would one day have. I don't have the health that I hoped I would have at this age. And what happens is we begin to go down a spiral of ingratitude and we grumble and we complain. And he uses this word, argue and dispute. We argue and dispute with God and we argue and dispute with others because we want our way rather than Jesus' way. And Paul would say, as long as you're headed down that path of ingratitude, you will not effectively work out your salvation. I remember when I was in seminary, one day I came into a class and, and the professor began to talk about his own life, his personal life. And he said, I'd appreciate prayer. My wife has had some major health problems lately. I don't remember what they were. He said, she was able to go to the doctor and she had a surgery. He said, it cost us $5,000, which for a seminary professor is a big chunk of change. It is for most people. But then I remember him saying, and and when I paid that bill, as I wrote the check, I said, thank you, God, for letting me write this check because I have $5,000 to pay for my wife's medical problems. And it deeply convicted me of all the things he could be sad about He chose gratitude. And Paul says gratitude is a path toward transformation because we open up our heart to say, God, what are you doing in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my trial, in the midst of the things I don't like? God, I trust you and I'm thankful for what you've given me in Jesus Christ, the life you have given me. And so I'll follow you. So Paul says that's our application. What then is the result? When we work out our salvation, when we follow the path of gratitude. He says, here it is. The result is both a testimony that we present to the world and a joy that fills our hearts. Look at verses 15 to 18. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It says when we choose the path of gratitude and we choose the path, that follows Jesus, it's both a testimony to the world and a source of joy to us as believers in Jesus Christ, that there is a joy that comes from gratitude. There is a joy that comes from following Jesus' path that nothing in the world can give. When we choose the opposite path, when we grumble and argue, it presents a testimony that isn't consistent with who Jesus is. Several years ago, I ran across this article, and I've been saving it for just such a moment. I'm not going to read the whole article, but the uh, headline sort of explains it all. The headline is, Women's Bible Study Ends with Bloody Nose and Arrest. (laughs) And uh, not to get into the details of the argument that caused all of this, because it actually says in here there are two versions of what happened. That won't surprise you. But throughout the Bible study, at some point, a dispute began over something that somebody thought somebody else had done or said. And the other person felt slighted. And the person who felt slighted, she took a swing at the other person. And then the the, the fight spilled into the kitchen where they began to fight on the kitchen floor and somebody called the police. By the time the police got there, there was blood and tears And they were not arguing about the meaning of Jesus' humility in Philippians 2. (laughs) But I read this and I thought, what a testimony of the grace and the unity and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not get into fisticuffs at your Bible study. But the reality is we are all tempted toward disunity, toward grasping at our own way. Yet Paul says, when we are able to stem that impulse toward grumbling and arguing, he says, "Here's what happens: You shine like stars." When he says, "You're blameless, innocent, above reproach," those are relative terms. He's not literally saying you become sinless, but he says, "In the face of a crooked and dark and perverse generation, what do you do? You shine like a star in the sky." I love that imagery. I grew up in Dallas in the city, and so for much of my life, I believed there were roughly four stars in the sky, because you can't see them. But a few years ago, my brothers, my dad and I, we went out to West Texas. We went to McDonald Observatory. And, and one night the clouds cleared. It was cloudy a lot of the time we were out there, but one night the clouds cleared, and you could just see thousands of stars that lit up the night. And that's what Paul describes, that when the people of Jesus Christ say, I want to work out what it means to have passed through this portal from death to life. I want to give my life to the love and the kindness and the truthfulness and the grace of Jesus Christ. What happens? We shine like stars that light up the sky in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Has an impact. When I know God's word, when I follow God's word, when I know Jesus Christ, and I follow Jesus Christ. When we are unified as the people of Jesus Christ under his banner, it presents a testimony to the world. And Paul says, I'll give my life for that. And so he says, Look, even if I'm being poured out, even if I die, so that your faith may grow, I rejoice. He says, you rejoice, share your joy with me. There is no sadness that can overcome the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Because when we know Jesus Christ, we have a joy that lasts forever. So Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. Be grateful so that Christ will be seen among his people. I'm going to close with a few questions and then Kenny and the band are about to come up and we're going to close in song in just a moment. But Let me ask a few questions of us as, as we close, as we think about this concept of what does it look like to work out our salvation? The first question is this, do you know Jesus? Do you know this morning that you have passed from death to life, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ? If you do not know him, The message of the scripture consistently is that the only way to have eternal life is by trusting in Jesus Christ. That you exercise faith in what he did. That he died for your sin and my sin. And he rose again, defeating death and sin. And all we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Do you know him? And if you know him then, Is your life increasingly reflecting him? Are you becoming more like Jesus in your attitudes? Do you have an attitude of of gratefulness rather than ingratitude? In your words, do you grumble? Do you argue? Do you fight both in person and online? Do you say those things in public and in private that are uplifting and truthful and right? And are you becoming more like Jesus in your actions, living out and demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? Will you look more like Jesus tomorrow? Will you submit your time and your energy and your life to being in his word, to spending time in prayer to worshiping him to make yourself available to the movement of the spirit of god in your heart are we becoming more and more like jesus let me close us in prayer father we are so grateful for your word we ask that we would become more like jesus not through our own power but through the power of the spirit that raised jesus from the dead father we pray that that we would humble ourselves and be willing to follow where you lead. We trust you, and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.